Open your can of monster energy drink to do the absolute opposite of what we should be doing. And enjoy this low-key debrief episode of Let Me Tell You Something. As myself, Lorca Mullen, and my co-host... Simon Cross. Make sure that we've got our list written correctly and do a bit of self-reflection as we've just reached match 30 with Manami Toyota against Toshio Yamada. So what we're going to do now is revise our previous list of top 10s individually... And our mutual top five. And then we will, between us, say whether any of the new ten matches that we've covered since the previous debrief are worthy of replacing our previous tippy-top premier list of the best matches covered so far that Dave Meltzer has rated, five stars or higher. So, Simon, has this been a tough list for you to compile? Um, yeah. Uh, it certainly it... has. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've, I've never been going back and forth with you. It's been a, certainly a struggle. Um, it's razor. It's on a razor's edge what made the cut and what didn't. Well, um, before we de- delve into that now, Simon, let's just make some interesting points. The previous matches, 1 to 20, contained uh, two matches that I gave five stars to and one match that you gave five stars to. Now we've added matches thir- 21 to 30. It's coming up to five matches that I've rated five stars and three that you have. So that certainly would suggest some chops and changes are going to happen. It would indeed. Um, yes, uh, you seem to be astounded when I did it more than once to a, <laughs> a five-star match. I'm still trying to winch my jaw off of the ground as it makes its way up to the top of my mouth. Um just to give people a reminder, our mutual top tens. At ten, I had Flair Wyndham won the Battle of the Be- uh, the Battle of the Belts in Florida. Simon had Linus Asker against Jaguar Yokota. Our number nines for me was Flair Funk, the I Quit match. For Simon, it was Genichiro Tenru facing Jumbo Saruta for the All Japan Triple Crown. My number eight was Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru facing off against Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Simon's number 8 was my number 10, Ric Flair against Barry Windham at Battle of the Belts. My number 7 was Simon's number 9, as I went for Genichiro Tenru and Jumbo Saruta. Simon's number 7 was Ric Flair versus Barry Windham 3 at the Crockett Cup in 1987. My number 6 was Simon's number 10, Jaguar Yokota against Linus Asuka. Simon's number 6 was my number 8, Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru against Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. My number five and Simon's number five was Genichiro Tenru and Toshiaki Kawada facing off against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. My number four was Flair St- uh, Rick Flair versus Barry Windham two at NWA Worldwide TV taping. Simon's number four was Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody taking on the Funk Brothers at the Champions Carnival. Not sorry, the Champions Carnival, the World's Strongest Tag League. My number three was Flair Steamboat's house show match in between their first and second uh, televised matches in Landover, Maryland. Simon's number three was my number four, Ric Flair against Barry Windham 2 on NWA television. 
And our mutual two was Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat's two out of three falls match at Clash of the Champions 6. And our mutual number one was Ric Flair facing off against Ricky Steamboat one last time at WrestleWar 89. And so when we pulled our mutual list together, this was what we came up with our top five of the five stars. Our five-star list, as it were. So at number five, we went with Genichiro Tenru and Jumbo Saruta against Ricky Chosho and Yoshiaki Yatsu. At number four, we went with Genichiro Tenru again, teaming up with Toshiaki Kawada against Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy. Our third place choice was Ric Flair Barry Windham 2 on Live and in Colour, as Dusty Rhodes kept reminding us. And our number two pick was Flair Steamboat, uh, the two out of three falls match at Clash of the Champions. And our number one pick overall was Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat at WrestleWar 89. But how will these lists have changed individually? And how will that affect that mutual five? Will all five remain? Will some be usurped? Will all be usurped? Will the order go all kinds of higgledy-piggledy? Will Ric Flair and Genichiro Tenru maybe let some other people play for once? We'll have to wait and find out, but not wait that long. Simon! Let's get started. Let's do our mutual 10s, our mutual 9s, 8s, and so on. Are you happy and ready with your list? I am. Do you want me to go first? Let's do it, baby. All right, lovely. So I have a uh, list remainer, keeping it vaguely topical. Um, I have Jumbo Saruta and Tenru versus Choshu and Yatsu as my number 10. Oh, okay. Now, um, previously on my previous list, that was... All the way up at number six. Number six. So that shows that something wicked or new or reevaluated this way comes. Mm. So my number ten is a new entry, and it is War Games from WrestleWar '92 as Sting Squadron faced off against the Dangerous Alliance. That was Sting. It was an all-star cast, maybe one of the biggest ten-man combination matches you could have in wrestling history. With Sting, Nikita Koloff, Ricky Steamboat, Dustin Rhodes, and Barry Windham facing off against Rick Rude, Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and Larry Zabisco. Now, it's a bit surprising to hear, see, hear you put a War Games match in, considering uh, the way you talked about them at the time. Thank you for teeing that up for me, Simon. Yes, it was. I uh, I think I, I was worried, part of it was worried that I, because I do have criticisms with War Games, and I think it's because it's almost so universally beloved that I almost feel like I need to vocalise the problems that I have because I don't think they maybe get vocalised enough by the just general The same way you feel about Christmas For years and years, well, you know I I think uh, it was a tragedy what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge personally but um, (laughs) (laughs) as you uh, but it was like, there was I mean for years and years everyone was saying WWE bring in war games, bring in war games and I was never as convinced that it was really what we needed that there were other gimmicks and other matches out there that would have been inspired by uh, what WrestleWar had and maybe had better, I don't want to say psychology, but better structure. I, you know, I, I made my criticisms... Well, literally of, in the case of Hell in a Cell, yes, it's yes. a better structure. I made my criticisms of War Games vocal, especially, I think, in the uh, first one, the 91 version with the Four Horsemen against Sting, the Steiner Brothers, and Brian Pillman. But I just want to say that I still, you know, I understand why it's beloved and... I would rate this War Games match 92's um, version as the best overall, including the two, frankly, maybe overbooked and overthought out 
uh, War Games matches that we've had on NXT compared to the slightly more haywire, improvisational seeming nature of a lot of the NWA versions of War Games. So, that was my 10. Simon, what was your number 9? Uh, my number 9 is still um, one from the old list. So, um, here goes the uh, new guard, same as the old guard. Uh, Tenru and Kawada versus Hanson and Gordy. And that is my number nine as well, Simon. So that was our mutual fifth in the overall five. So that's not necessarily a good sign that it's going to be able to hold out. But let's see as we go along. Simon, what was your number eight? Uh, my number eight, um, I've not not changed anything yet so far. Hanson and Brody versus the Funks. You've just sort of changed their positioning, which suggests there are new names to come as we go along. Uh, my number eight is another new entry. So I've had two new entries to your zero so far. With Misawa, Kawada, and Kabashi fighting for the first time in the six-man match format against Jumbo's Army of the veteran Saruta and Masanobu, the shithouse Fushi, and their young recruit, Akira Tawe. That was the one between the three, the six men that took place on the 19th of October 1990 and is episode 22, if you want to listen back. Simon, what was your number seven? Well, if you're looking for my first new entry, look no further than the very same match Lorcan has just described. Mm. And my number seven is a first one from the Flair matches that were so highly rated before. It's taken a slight tumble. It's gone from four to seven, as it's Ric Flair, Barry Windham, match number two, the one that made our overall top five as well, the one that was live and in colour on worldwide television. And Simon, what was your number seven? Uh, no, I just did my number seven. This is my number six. Oh, sorry. What was your number six? Uh, my number six is the third out of the three we watched, but the fourth in the series of um, Jumbo Saru- Jumbo's team versus Misawa's team. So your seventh was Misawa was the Super Generation Army number one. Number one, and your sixth is the match number three, although number four overall, but it was the third one. Yeah. to get five stars. So that was the one that was on the uh, 22nd of May 1992. That's the one. Okay. My number... Sorry, just just making that note. My number six was Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat having the house show match at Landover, Maryland. The fan cam footage match. The Ricky Steamboat match I did not include last time. Well, one of two that you didn't include. You also didn't include the Chi-Town Rumble in it either. No. The one where Steamboat won the world title. Uh, Simon, what was your... So we're now into our top fives. So last time, Simon, you have... You've already knocked two of your top five... No, you've already knocked three of your top five out. Oh, no, 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 sorry, you've only knocked two. Yes, yes, you've knocked three of your top five out. So there are three new entries by the looks of it. Uh, yes. Are any of them um, number five? One, two. Yeah, because there's only two new entrants into my top five. You've miscounted. Oh, okay, all right. Wouldn't be the first time for us, would it, Simon? It would not. So let's but do take to put you out- four, or whatever <laughs> it is now. <laughs> to put you out of your misery, uh, my number five is a match you already have listed so far in this uh-huh. list. It is Flair Windham 2. Okay. My number five is one of the... We're now into the matches that I gave five stars to. 
Uh, so if people have been listening along, you'll know what they are. And it is Mitsuhara Masawa's star-making turn in his shock-upset victory on the 8th of June 1990 against Jumbo Saruta. Ah, the singles match. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm not mad at that. Mm-hmm. Simon, what's your number four? My number four is Blair Steamboat the Third. That's the one that's at the Clash of the Champions? That is Clash of the Champions, yeah. That's my number four as well. So our mutual number two last time is now our mutual number four. <clears throat> now, at third is a new entry. Mm-hmm. It is Kabashi and Kikuchi taking on the Canadian powerhouses of Furnace and Crawford. My number three as well. Ooh. So here's where it's interesting. Number two. Straight shootout. Number two. I think I think I know. Well, yeah, we know. We know. Because we're on to the matches that we both gave five stars to. But the question is, has, order. has our number one been usurped by one of us? And if not, this could cause a bit of a set to when we have to do a mutual top five. This is going to be interesting. So, po- poking my head above the parapet. My number two is Flair Steamboat 4. We're going to have to get down and dirty with this side because my number two is Misawa Kobashi Kawada taking on Saruta, Tawe and Fushi in the second of their six-man tag matches. Well, it might have been the third. I can't remember in the series. But that's the second one that got five stars, the 2nd of April 1991 match, which I'm assuming is your new number one. Much like taking the last ball out in an FA Cup draw, just to confirm, my number one spot is that very same match. And just to confirm, your number two is my number one. It's Flair Steamboat at Wrestle War 89. Oof. So, I'm just looking at this. Your number five, Flair Wyndham 2, is my number seven, mm-hmm. which was our num- mutual number three. I think I'm okay with that taking Misawa Saruta for my top five. Okay, so so we're happy with because you don't have because you don't have Misawa Saruta anywhere in your top ten. Fair enough. So I think so. Our mutual top ten, our mutual top five is clear what those matches are, and the order from five to three is also clear. Number five is Flair Wyndham two. Number four. Is Flair Steamboat Clash of the Champions? Number three is Kenta Kabashi and Soyoshi Kikuchi against the Can-Am connection of Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. Ah, one was American. My bad. But two and one, side. The high noon shootout now. I would argue that. Can I make my case for Flair Steamboat? By it's seen as the Citizen Kane of wrestling, basically. It's for a world title. It's a main event match. It's not only a fantastic match, it's a match that needed to be fantastic culturally. This was just an exceptionally well wrestled um... match that in the grand scheme of things wasn't anywhere near as important as my number five, Misawa Saruta's five-star match. It didn't need to be five stars. Just to row you back a little bit, when you say culturally... It had to be five star. What do you mean by that exactly? 
in that they were already known to have these great matches and it was a pay-per-view main event. It was the capper of a series of fantastic matches that had escalated in quality over time. It was for the biggest prize in wrestling as they presented it. It was, it was, that's the, it's not just that it's an amazingly well-wrestled match like the six-man tag is. Mm. It's that it's Federer and Nadal against Wimbledon as the sun's coming down in 2008 or whatever. It's the two of the best, at their best, at the most important match it is to be at your best. Beyond being at a WrestleMania main event or something like that. Or a Wrestle Kingdom main event. It was more... Or a Starcade. The pressure was there and it was between just two men having to hold it all together for 35 minutes. Whereas the six-man tags, they're relying on each other and they're able to keep a pace that's not necessarily as punishing to them. Mm. But on the flip side, um, the six-man tag match, because it has the extra participants, is does benefit from the faster pace. And there are very few, and I mean very few, six-man tag matches where everyone looks like a superstar. Not just like a star, not just like they belong, but looks like a superstar. Um this this is the best one of them I've ever seen. This, to me, is a match that solidifies that there was a golden age before what I knew. When we embarked on this project, I, 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 I sort of... Are you saying that this made you reinterpret your understanding of wrestling history? Yes. But that's more of a personal experience. That is more of a personal experience. <clears throat> However, it's just a feeling I have to convey. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as I say, to me, it's more than just a tag match. The way the individuals interact with each other, it's like a myriad of si- of singles matches. There's rich storyline between each individual, not team, but each competitor. The way that um, Misawa's team interact with Jumbo compared to the way they interact with Fushi, compared to the way Fushi interacts with... Misawa's team and like you see the growth and the development throughout the match you, I'll, the give narrative... you, I'll give you that there are intricacies within it yeah. that are brilliant but there are intricacies within the Flair and Steamboat match that call back to previous matches that call back to what they do and they're just it's more challenging to do it the way they do it and to keep people gripped and so you they don't I... take a wrong turn, and that they change it up enough. You know, Flair works hmm. slightly differently to how he works in the Chai Town Rumble match, to how he works in the two out of three falls match. Now, to me, I'm, I might be misinterpreting this, but it it sounds like that you're being a little bit. You're basically setting out the stall of saying that the greatest match ever could never be a tag match. Is is that what you're saying? I think that it depends on your definition of greatest. And how, because greatest also denotes significance and importance. And there was nothing that important to the six man tag compared to what was at stake for Flair and Steamboats. They had to top themselves, they had to do it on TV in front of, on, on pay per view. They were doing it at a time when, you know, Ric Flair was getting to be 40. Steamboat wasn't much younger. And they were just... It was just the culmination of two men 
like I said, it's it's harder to do it as a singles, and I think wrestling is ultimately going to always be defined by person A versus person B, and everything else is kind of set dress, not set dressing, but it's always in supports. Mm-hmm. Like like, can the greatest performance in a movie be a supporting performance? Uh, like in all of film, be a, a supporting performance. Because that, well, in- that six that six man tag match is a supporting storyline to the Jumbo versus Masawa feud. But it's also an incubator for so much more. It's the growth of Kabashi as a character. It's the establishment of. But it's only a small. Tarai it's not Fushi. even a chapter end for those. Really, this was a definitive chapter end of a feud. Maybe the greatest feud of all time, the greatest series of matches of all time, singles matches until hmm. Okada Omega. I mean, Dave Meltzer, if we're going to cite Dave Meltzer, I don't think he's ever given over five stars for any match that wasn't a singles match, for example. No. So to Meltzer, that's more important. Like, how many WrestleMania ma- main events are singles matches? How many Wrestle Kingdom main events are singles matches? The NWA was defined by the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Mm. But this is the that... defi- This is the, def- the the champion. The championship means that it's the. It's not just that. It's, it's the defining aspect, and that's why one of the reasons why I gave the Masao. Although that wasn't for a championship, but that's one of the reasons why I rated Saruta Tenru so highly because it gave weight to the the Triple Crown Championship, and I you know. When we get to it soon enough, uh, the first ever six-star match, Masawa Kawada in a singles match for the Triple Crown. I think it's it's a more it's it's a harder handicap. You go there with six of you, someone can be. Whilst no one is poor, it's like how Akira Tawe. You know, we're still debating: is he the Ringo star of wrestling? Yeah, you can't you can't have a Ringo in a singles match. No, but a Ringo. Is still really good, and B, in this match in particular, like Tawei's not. There's no weak component. It's no, but Tawei is. Tawei's not necessarily at his best in that match because he doesn't have to do enough to prove that he's working at his best. He works extremely well, but he doesn't have to push himself beyond his lim- almost beyond his limitations, like Flair and Steamboat have to do, like later on Omega and Okada do, Misawa and Kawada do. You know, it's just it's it's a greater handicap to have to do it in a singles match. But you be, in some ways, it's harder in a six man tack because you've got more moving parts that you have to work with. I just think that if you look at it from an outsider and you're going to say, okay, which of these matches? If I have to watch one match for wrestling, what would it be? Would you just recommend a six man tag team match from a random all Japan show? Or would you recommend a match between two of the most culturally significant wrestlers of all time in a singles match for a championship belt at the main event of a pay-per-view? Well, if I had to use name value as part of going, this is what wrestling is, um, I would lean towards Flair Steamboat. You're right there. But in terms of... It's a list of recommendations. I think it's incredibly flattering in and of itself to give this six-man tag the number two spot. That shows you how good it is. But I think for it to be the best, there needs to be more to it. Ah, to me, it was there, though. Like, it's, I, I, 
it, there's an intangible to me that was magic it was it made me feel and i am going to personal feeling here it did make me feel childlike i was just could sucked this, into it do you think this could be your favorite sink. do you think this could be your favorite match ever now um it's up there it's it's in that pantheon it's in the top tier I don't think it's I don't think it's insulting to that match to say that it's the second best match we've watched so far. No, no. I'm, I'm not saying it's insulting to Flair Steamboat, but you get where I'm coming from. You know, it's like it's like it's kind of like oh god, it's like it's a tough it's a tough one for both circumstances because and, and given this is fundamentally meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but to but in both in both of our situations, something had to be number two and something had to be number one, and. We have our, we, we clearly have our passionate reasons for choosing the order that we did, but we're by no means disparaging or undermining the other one. Well, I think, it, I think the other ones. I, I think the topper, the reason you went one way and I went the to- the other, is literally personal preference. Mm-hmm. But this is where it's got to be a mutual agreement. Agreement. This is the this is the hard bit that we we often we don't face. have the tiebreaker to come in on this. No. But if you go by the tiebreaker, I would argue that the tiebreaker is cultural resonance. Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat are going to have reunions where they talk about those matches for the rest of their life. Mm. I honestly don't think, even if you're a bit of a Masawa, if you're a Masawa fanboy. I don't think that that's going to be the one that everyone says is the one Misawa match you have to watch, or the one Kawada match, or the one Kabashi match. It might well, be the one Fushi without, match, without, or it might be the one Tawai match. Without peeking the veil too far into the future, I do see your point. Um... I just say, you, you ask people, I think if people said, okay, so what's your definitive list? And we said, Flair Steamboat at Wrestle War. They might say, predictable, but I think they'd also say, totally understandable. Understandable. I... I, I, I I begrudgingly take your point. It's like, I'm not disputing this is probably the greatest six-man tag team match that what I've ever seen. Yeah. But the greatest singles match is more important than the greatest six-man tag. Yeah. Unless maybe you're in Mexico or Chikara. <laughs> uh, okay, so to summarise, I think we'll respect each other's personal opinions, but I do... It's seeing like, see, seeing your point about the cultural resonance... Yeah. Let's say it's one and think, one A in our own minds. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think you are right, and we should put uh, Flair Steamboat as our definitive number one lock. Mm. For now. For now. So, it's sort of like that Robot Wars final where they were sort of equal on like three parts, and they had to go to like Control and um, Chaos Two beat Pussycat that year. Okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so. Just to reiterate, our top five match for matches 1 to 20 had been at 5, Tenru and Saruta against Choshu and Yatsu. At 4, Tenru and Kawada against Hanson and Gordy. At 3, it was Flair, Wyndham 2. At 2, it was Flair, Steamboat at Clash of the Champions 6. And our number one was Flair, Steamboat at WrestleBall 89. But our new and improved list has listed at number five, down two places from number three. Flair Wyndham two. At number four, down two places from number two. Flair Steamboat at Clash of the Champions six. At number three is a new entry. Kenta Kabashi and Soyoshi Kikuchi challenging for the All Japan All Asia Tag Team titles against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. At number two, 
is the part two of the ongoing feud between the Super Generation Army and Jumbo's Army as Mitsuhara Masawa, Ken Takabashi, and Toshiaki Kawada took on Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe, and Masanobu Fushi on the 2nd of April, 1991. But staying at number one is Flair Steamboat at WrestleWar 89. So there we go. Clings a... on, it clings on, mm. just... But I think hopefully that's if if people were still on the on the fence or maybe forgotten about the match after we talked about it, I think that makes it clear you guys need to get your asses, get your hands on your asses if you want to. But before then, get your hands on Kabashi Kikuchi against the Kanam Connection. Particularly, get your hands on the April nineteen ninety one version of the Jumbo's Army against the Super Generation Army six man tag match. It is interesting uh, for our top three. I mean, I'm pu- I am being like very pedantic to make this point, but we have three different match types. Yeah, that's true. Six man tag team and singles. Funny there were some eight man tag matches that. <laughs> I don't. I think there might be one in this list that's an eight man tag. If you'd have done, you know, we have well, war, game. I, I, war I games ten, are eight man tag, tag matches. Yeah, we we have had the eight man tag in. We had the eight man in the war games ninety one and the ten man, which was in my top ten of war games ninety two. I forgot that was ten. Mm. So that was the first part, the intricate, pedantic, ultimately meaningless <laughs> <laughs> list taking. Uh, next, we wanted to get some other voices involved in this. Like I said, we could have done with an independent adjudicator for that tete-a-tete. Uh, um, and Simon, do we have a bit of correspondence to answer? Uh, someone sent in a mail to lmtyspod at gmail.com to set us a quandary, a question, a query, a quibble, or something else. Uh, yes, yes, uh, we do. Um that's a bit annoying, really, because we've sort of semi... Um, well, I, I at least feel I've sort of semi-answered this question already in this very episode. But um, the question goes as follows. Uh, since starting your project, do you feel you have become more receptive to different styles of wrestling? Ah, and who's so, that from? Uh, that is from Dave in Preston. Preston. there's Preston. <laughs> You reached for that one. <laughs> like reaching for a rope. Well, Dave, I've always liked to think of myself as an open-minded person. I think um, of the ones that we've covered that we've recorded, there is one particular uh, type of culture or of matches that I haven't watched enough of, nearly enough of, that I keep meaning to. And so that... and I, I, I guess we can kind of hold off of that. But basically... Um, well, it's actually the next episode, so... Not to give you too much of a peek behind the curtains, but we have already recorded uh, episode 31, which is a AAA Trios Mexican Wrestling Lucha Libre match. And I've always said it's like, um, it is a different culture, a different understanding, a different grammar and language of wrestling. And it's like trying to watch different genres of films or foreign language films. There's certain... I think you've got to get to a certain age and a certain receptiveness and uh, a level of curiosity to want to dive into something even more. Like, you know, I'm into politics, but like, I, not only do I read up about British politics, I also read a lot about American politics and I try to keep up to date with uh, European politics occasionally. I try to find out stuff and like... 
one of my ultimate endeavours in life, if I could get some sort of media thing off the ground, would be all about geopolitics. Because I think the greater your, you always, I think you've always got to be receptive to new experiences in life. Now that doesn't mean you have to jump off a, a, a plane and skydive. You don't have to do everything. Your bucket list Well, if you jump off a plane, everything. ideally you have to skydive as well. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, if you know, if you just want a hell of a way to go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but you get where I'm coming from. Being receptive to new things doesn't <clears> mean you have to be receptive to everything, but it also doesn't mean you inherit you automatically shut yourself away from things either. Um, I do. So it's like, I do. It's like I will. I will try to watch other types of wrestling, but I can't guarantee that I will enjoy it all the time. Because, Sai, you were obviously resistant to the shoot-fighting wrestling of UWF, <laughs> uh, to go I, back to... No, yeah, yeah, no, I'm someone So does that who, uh... put you off it, or do you think maybe now that you're starting to get to grips with different things, maybe you should give more matches of that ilk another try? That particular ilk, probably not. But ilks in general... Um... Which is a terrible sentence. Uh, yes, I think I would be more receptive. Um, one of the main reasons when you first pitched this project um, as an idea that I, wa- I wanted to do it was because, as a wrestling fan goes, I am very WWE-centric. I'm very in the comfort zone. Well, I mean, that's partly because one of the things I always like to push is the generational aspect to it. And the mm. thing about you is that you literally didn't start watching wrestling until post ECW and WCW. I think 2002 was basically your ground zero for wrestling, wasn't it? Yeah, around that time. I Which, think like, I remember saying that to a, a comedian who's a huge wrestling fan, and he said he can't comprehend someone getting into wrestling after a certain point because I guess his cynical everything sucks mentality maybe mm. like to override anything else. Um, um, so I, I had a, fr- a friend of mine who got into wrestling uh, at well just before the Daniel Bryan run to WrestleMania 30. Um, he was watching WrestleMania 27 mm. um, the other day and he just turned around to me and went, why were you watching this then? <laughs> and I couldn't honestly provide him with an answer. I think, yeah, you can, you can not separating the wheat from the chaff is the wrong way to put it. But there is, um, Mm-mm. it's like, well, it's like I will watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, but I do not invest any real emotional attachment to it particularly. Yeah, I don't, I don't follow the culture. I've read a couple of comic books. I've skimmed in and out. I don't dispute the, the, the merits of the medium or the art form. But after a while, you've only got so many hours in your life to dedicate to everything. That's you true. Know, I'd like, like, at some point in the future, I would like to start a jazz record collection because I do like jazz music. And I would like to have a record collection. It's just getting the right time and the right money and the right situation. At some point in my life, I want to record an album's worth of music. At some point in my life, I want to write a full-length novel. Um, you've just got to compartmentalize your time for it. Mm. And as you get older, you realize how much more finite it is. I don't have as, nearly as many responsibilities as a lot of other people my age. Uh, and I definitely don't... I think some people don't understand why isn't everyone into it as much as I am, or they think that you're inherently less of a fan of something if you don't know all the minutiae and the trivia of it. Mm. And that's where you get into like toxic fan culture. Gatekeeping. Gatekeeping, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think I was ever guilty of it, but I definitely did used to think like I'm the biggest fan. I'm one of the bigger fans of Ring of Honor because I know all this trivia about it. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, that's reflected in my book, Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan, buy it now. Um, but yeah, I'm absolutely... I mean, I don't think I'm any... I, well, my desire to do this was because I like to think I'm open-minded <clears> and <throat> want to learn more. And I've always wanted to watch loads of these All Japan matches, but haven't necessarily had a... What is to, almost again because as you get older you've got to compartmentalize your time it's it's part of a a, a goal mm. uh, of like my goals to do more media uh work and and like i love doing podcasts producing podcasts and i thought we sometimes with our show we can run out of steam with it and there are obviously if you look at like the release schedules of our previous episodes there are long gaps in between and i've enjoy, always enjoyed doing this but i think we we needed to kick up the ass through some sort of project structure structure yeah. And the, um, and the so, reason so it's I like, took it's, on... it was open-mindedness, but it was also uh, a way that we could work within our own uh, time limitations as we got mm. older. And I needed the structure, I guess, to become more open-minded. Because um, I saw this as a way that I could... Because there's, there's, there's times you get home, uh, and there's certain movies I've not watched which yeah. are cult classics and are like hot new things. Like, for example, Get Out not seen it but i have seen Step Brothers again at some point at least two or three times in the past year because it's easy it's comfort food yeah it's like um you know i've had a dvd of schindler's list for years on my shelf but when are you in the mood for schindler's list mm. and you know you watch it at home and watching movies at home is a difficult task at times now more than ever with distractions and re- responsibilities and obligations and, and mm. everything else and then just by pure coincidence there was a there was a 25th anniversary screening going on at my cinema uh, that i found out on the day and even though i'd had this dvd for years this was like this was my opportunity this is my compartmentalized time clear and evident and that allowed me to do it you know that's why so, i don't understand people that do homeworking um I, I don't get how you can't get distracted that much it's, yeah i was never I, good at that at school i used uh, to do it in the canteen in but the people morning. do it for like jobs it baffles me. Yeah, yeah. So well, fair, I think, if you can do it, fair play. So we think, aren't those people. <laughs> yeah. So I think we answered that question somewhere in there. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> um, I hope you can thank us for that. Uh, but basically, to summarise it, I, I'm, I took on this project to become more open-minded, and as a result, I, I think I am becoming more open-minded to wrestling. And I would like to consider myself as open-minded already, but what this project allowed me to do was... Um, actually get to um, do what I wanted to do, like organize me in a way, like it it it, it confined it, it closed it in. It's like sometimes, like uh, most of the great art is better done when they've got limitations, mm. when the budget can only allow so much. You know, when Monty Python are making the Holy Grail for like let next to nothing, and they can't afford a horse, so then you get one of the funniest jokes in movie history because of that. <laughs> and like, and when they didn't the police scene happen because they literally ran out of money? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, so weirdly, it, this has allowed us to discipline ourselves. It's like you know, like I said, you don't have to be open to everything, but the things that you want to be open to, um, mm. you know, and and definitely don't. I mean, you know, I I still have my. I think I would struggle to sit through like a whole CZW tournament of death show. I think most people would. Uh, I don't want to say. I don't know. That's that's a whole another argument. We'll save that for another time. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think so. Yes, 
Uh, but I, I like to think I was already open-minded, but this <clears throat> allows me to do more heavy lifting. I, I like this has disciplined me into it. You Put know? the spade work behind your open like, mind. Yeah, I can't just say I'm up for watching it and I want to. This has allowed me to say, well, it's for a project. It's almost for a, not a job, but, you know, mm. it's a, it's a, not a bucket list, but it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Like, if you can challenge yourself. Yeah. So, on to a further challenge. We're challenging Dave Meltzer's own opinions here, as we've got the third of our series of matches, every ten matches, where we look at a match that Dave Meltzer hasn't given five stars to, but one or both of us maybe would. Uh, the first one we went with was Magnum TA against Tully Blanchard at, at uh, Starcade 85, the Steel Cage I Quit match. The second match we went with was Kijimuto against Masahiro Chono at the first ever G1 Climax final in 1991. In both of those instances, I would give both of those matches five stars. Simon didn't quite for either of them. So let's see if it's third time's a charm, because we are about to talk about, I'll say it right now, my favourite match of all time. I'm not no pressure. It's <laughs> the best match of all time. I'm not saying that there's a parcel waiting in the post to send to you, Simon, if you don't agree with me. <laughs> and hopefully the smell will not put the uh, postman off of delivering it to you. But uh... <laughs> it's one of the few times I'd rather poo than, a, than than what I thought you were going with there. So that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, the Sharon Osborne. Um, so we are talking about a match from August 1992 that I believe Dave Meltzer gave four and a half stars to. I might be wrong there, but I believe that's what he gave it. It's Wembley Stadium. It's Wrestle. It's SummerSlam 92. It's for the Intercontinental Championship. It's Bret the Hitman Hart, my favourite wrestler of all time, against a man who for the longest time I said was my third favourite wrestler of all time. The British Bulldog, David Boy Smith. I haven't really re-ranked my favourite wrestlers since that, I don't know, ten years ago that I always said. I always said my three favourite wrestlers were Bret Hart, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog. I don't <laughs> know now. I mean, Ken Kabashi's definitely making a run for it for me. I don't know if he is for you. Um, his stock rises each time I uh, yeah, watch his work. Shawn Michaels, yeah, uh, Kazuchika Okada's, all these other people, fantastic wrestlers out there. Soya Naito, Ric Flair, I'm reassessing and reinterpreting. With Disco matches. Inferno. Oh yeah, all of the usual list. Um, so this is a match that I watched so many times I didn't have to re-watch it for this uh, project. Uh, you just finished watching it before we started recording, Simon. For the first uh, ever time. First ever time. Wow. You, so do you not... I'm curious about this. So, like, of the old wrestling, let's just get into that. Like, what is your viewing habits for old wrestling? Like, you've had the network for however long. Um, I had the network before it was available in the UK. How much of the... So, it's interesting you're saying you're sitting there watching WrestleMania 27 again instead of Well, no, no, no. Like... My friend was watching okay. WrestleMania okay, 27 fair again. enough, fair enough. He, uh, I, missed, I misquoted that anecdote slightly. We're in the pub, and he's like, oh, I saw this the other day. Yeah. How the hell did you watch it? <laughs> So, like, there's a whole chapter of my book, Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan, by it now, uh, dedicated to this match. And just around the whole time of me growing up as a wrestling fan and, and how, for us, especially if you didn't have Sky, you're just <coughs> relying on VHSs and you're just cycling through three or four or five or six tapes of wrestling again and again and again. And so I watched this match so many times. I watched the whole show so many times. 
that I probably could have recited the commentary off by heart uh, back in the day. Probably not all of it now, but I like I quoted a few lines to you as uh, you did. as we were getting ready to record. Oh no! Oh yeah! The bulldog just got bulldogged. <laughs> it's, um, as weird as that is, imagine he's making eye contact with you mm. as he's doing it, and you're pretty much um, as he terrified has as I no am. No right idea now. what I'm doing under the Skype viewer. <laughs> <laughs> I can only see like his his head and shoulders, and that's probably all I want to see right now. <laughs> Give it a few more minutes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this is a match I just know inside and out. So are there any... So when you grew up, you didn't have... You you were renting them from the library, weren't you? So you were kind of cycling I, through. Were there any that you owned? Uh, the first DVD I owned myself was WrestleMania 18. Um, and, did, and did you watch that like over and over again? Like, I did watch the, that over and over. Do you again. know the the Hogan Rock commentary by heart? I don't know it by heart. Um, I do, weirdly because I guess it's the the type of uh, the stage of my life as a teenager I was in. Then I remember some a lot of the hardcore uh, segments. Uh, Al Snow driving um, his golf cart into the um, boxes. Um, Molly Holly turning on Hurricane with a frying pan. Mm-hmm. Um, Hura Perth, the godfather chasing away Hurricane. Uh, Christian absolutely levering Molly Holly with a, a stage door. Okay. I, just, I just like the hard <laughs> title. And I, I know it's a weird thing to take away from it. Um, but the Kane-Kurt Angle match. Mm. Really oh, that's good. where Kurt Angle had his awesome Mirror Universe black alternate costume. Yeah. That was a really cool... Uh, costume we still have to do an episode about wrestling uh, costumes um so yes no, but, so, so, but okay so just to ask okay so how much 80s and 90s wwf wrestling have you watched very little that's interesting is it is it so is it just a lack of curiosity a lack of time, time. Uh, is is it the old-fashioned nature of the wrestling is it um a little bit of the old-fashioned nature of the wrestling um, to go back to, I'm going to use my uh, WrestleMania 27 mate again because just before WrestleMania 30, uh, he embarked on a project using my network. Annoyingly, <laughs> uh, more than one people have my password. It's a nightmare when you watch new pay per views. Uh, he watched every single WrestleMania main event and Undertaker match from all the WrestleManias. He was working his way through it, mm. um, and so some of the stuff that he like saw as like finishes and like devastating moves it's just there's a disconnect i guess yeah uh for well, yeah, I mean, so far later on i saw a, a gif of harley race winning the nwa world title for the first time off of dory funk jr and he won it with a vertical suplex mm. and um <laughs> The whole back suplex thing when we covered the cultural significance of that in Japan. I mean, I obviously came into that cold. I didn't know that. So to me, it was like, what's going on here? Yeah. So let's then get to this. But had you watched much Bret Hart? Had you watched much British Bulldog? I would have thought if you'd have watched anything, it would have been at least Bret Hart matches. Uh, I have seen the most famous, the two most famous Bret Hart matches. Can I guess what they are? these the Montreal, ones. The Montreal Screwjob match. Yep. Uh, 
Against Owen Hart at WrestleMania 10? No, no, no. The most famous one. Not the most good. The most famous one. Uh, the Austin one. Oh, okay, yes. Well, stay tuned for that one. Um, which, which aren't really two very representative Bret Hart matches, really. No. So this, interestingly, was Bret Hart... Chant- let's, let's get into the match itself, because... What is interesting is this is also a rare instance, especially in the um, 90s, of a face-versus-face match. SummerSlam 92 was an interesting one in that there were two face-versus-face matches and uh, one even rarer heel-versus-heel match uh, in the undercard. Uh, The two main event matches, the, the sort of American main event, which was Randy Savage against the Ultimate Warrior for the world title, which is a really fantastic underrated match that kind of gets forgotten because of this match the the career match at wrestlemania 7 that they had i know because this match is on the card as well because of the bret hart um uh, like like if if the if the uh career match is the ultimate warriors greatest match of all time you could make a case for this match being maybe third or fourth obviously you've got a thought also factor in wrestlemania 6 with hogan yeah maybe one of his rick rude matches but um yeah anyway so, and, and the heel versus heel match was a very interesting one between uh, Shawn Michaels and Rick Martel. That's a fun little match to watch. Oh, they were both heels? Yes, Because obviously I was flicking through the match card to get to the main event, and I did mm. see that one. I was like, well, who was the face there? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Shawn sort of plays subtle face in that match. And in this match, it's Bret Hart playing subtle heel. And by that, he's never breaking the rules. He bends them in a couple of places, but he just does things where he sort of tricks Davy boy he uh he cuts him off he antagonizes the crowd a little but not to the point that he's being heelish yeah you could um bobby i think passes it off as um gamesmanship rather than out and out heelishness but bobby's all over the shop he's like disparaging both guys uh there's one bit where it's um uh brett pulls bulldog's hair and uh some of his hair out and um brett's doing that dust off that strands of hair to the crowd thing and Bobby just goes, well, Bulldog couldn't do that to Brett because that hair's far too greasy. <laughs> yeah, Bobby Heenan's great as always. And Vincent Mann does a decent job in this match as well. He did one of my biggest bugbears of Rick Fla- of um, Vincent Mann as a commentator where he said that an inverted atomic drop was a, a reverse pile driver. For some reason, that was always the name he gave that move. <laughs> of all the moves that he rarely calls, he calls one of them wrong. Um... But yeah, you can do a lot when you're. But Brent does. Brent does like loads of classic heel cut-off points. He he wears him down with a chin lock, uh, which is obviously a heel spot to do usually. Brett, uh, Hulk Hogan did that to the Ultimate Warrior WrestleMania Six actually. Um, he did, the, and then when Bulldog fights out of that, he does the knee to the gut when he's running the rope to cut off the sort of babyface comeback. He, uh, like I say, he pulls on the hair. He gets Bulldog in a sleeper hold, and Bulldog gets into the ropes, and Brett doesn't release until yeah, well, that's a weird doesn't moment, release several he gets times. Two four counts. Yeah, it's like it surprised the ref because he's like, "Well, I'm not going to disqualify you," and Brett kind of takes advantage of that. Now, I guess because they make the referees call it shoots, uh, like they have to count and everything. Maybe that would have been like, "Oh shit, <laughs> screwed up there." Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was, because, uh, well, you know how I do sometimes when I find like details that like dis- disconnect me. I was like, was that a botch or are they, is the referee just being no, mean because the that was took the match? That was Brett yeah. doing heel work essentially. 
that he was just desperate to win. That's the thing. It's like um... I can't remember if that point because one of the themes of this match, which you don't see in a lot of matches, which did add to this match, um, is the picture-in-picture uh, picture of Diana. Yes, not the Diana. We should point out, but British Bulldog's wife. Yes, although they weren't a million miles away from each other in appearance. No, no. Uh, I can imagine Diana going into the barbers and going, "Give me the Diana." Yeah, <laughs> and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, Bret Hart does all that. What's also interesting is that it was one. Although, of the if first you go times... to a barber's for Diana, for the Diana, you really go parking up the wrong tree. I must just say. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so. If we go back to the actual match, um, what's interesting as well is it's one of the first times I can recall of a finishing sequence that's actually a lot like what we now see in a lot of main event finishing sequences, which is trading of near falls and big moves. Like, Bulldog gets the running power slam, his finisher, and Bret Hart kicks out of that. Like, the first kick out they, they speak of as the first kick out of that finisher. Yeah, and Davy Boy sells that so well, just the shock. I say he sells that, he sells that in a more... Uh, this is going to be controversial. He sells that in a better way than, like, the f- because of its frequency of whenever Undertaker hits the tombstone at WrestleMania. And for, like, since WrestleMania 25, I think they've always kicked out... And he always, it's always that same look of incredulity. It's like, dude, whereas, must know. <laughs> whereas when Bret Hart kicks out of the move here, it's like David Boy's heartbroken. Like, maybe I'm just never going to win this. And like, and then when Bret Hart's still all woozy and wobbly and he just sort of pushes him out of the ring, it's like he's lost a, he doesn't know where to go from here. Well, and then we've he tries all, we've... to suplex and he suplexes him back in the ring and Bret Hart escapes and hits a German suplex and gets a close ball mm. of his own, you know? We've all had that moment then when we thought we've done enough, and then it isn't. Though. Well, it's like it's like when a football team that's winning all the way through the game suddenly concedes a goal unexpectedly, and they lose their heads. It's kind of like in that moment, Davy Boy loses his head for a while, and it nearly costs him the match. Atletico Madrid a few years ago in the Champions League final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a great example of having that last-minute equaliser by Ramos and then just collapsing entirely in extra so, yeah. time. So yeah, it's Bulldog hitting his, his finisher and a kick out of a finisher was basically something that only Hulk Hogan Hogan and Ultra Warrior would do and then they'd Hulk up. Yeah. Uh, or you'd see it because there was a super well, a technically a super finisher before, if you think of Undertaker's tombstone was onto a chair. But that's what he had yeah. to do to beat Hogan, yeah. for example. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, and when he beat Jake the Snake, he tombstone him on the outside of the ring. Um and also, Bret Hart at SummerSlam 91 did kick out of Mr. Perfect's Perfect Plex. But that was also sort of a perfect was on his way out because of injury and everything. Mm. Um, so that was more just a like a passing, passing the torch. torch element to it. So it wasn't so much like... I think it was the way to keep Bret strong, even though he was losing its Davy. And he did look strong. I mean, you know, yeah. two months later, he's winning the WWF Championship. And I think this is the match that basically made Vince think, okay, well, this guy can be our main eventer, especially at the time post-steroids. Mm. And he was always popular, and, and Bret Hart retained, especially in Europe, because you do a have to look... very, very loyal following, and I think this match is the reason part for that. Because you do have to look at the... He was seen as part of the British Bulldog, you know, the family, and so there was that connection to him emotionally. Mm. And that's... And like I said, he's my favourite wrestler of all time, and this match is like one of the main reasons because he was the crazy thing is also knowing that he was basically carrying this match all the way mm. through 
that he was wrestling himself almost because Bulldog was just physically fucked, as he said, like two minutes into the match. Yeah. Just before we uh, go on to that point and that anecdote that you have told me before uh, about uh, the way they communicate in the match, it's interesting you raise the steroid points uh, because look at the physiques of the guys. Uh, it's it's chalk and cheese. It really well, is. Bulldog's kind of bloated at this point because he'd been injured for a while and so he wasn't actually as ripped as he usually was. No. Uh, as he large. Had a bit of a, but he had a bit of a stomach defined. on him, but he was yeah. just bulky. And that was when he when he came back, he came back actually a much better wrestler in 95, 96 when he turned heel and he did drop a bit of weight. He was still mm-hmm. huge, but he, you know, he, he leaned out a bit and he was in much better physical condition compared to where he was now. And like he had, you know, they had that follow-up match in your house five in 1995 where Brett got the win back that some people argue is better than this match. Uh, and frankly, it's a match I haven't really watched that much because it's almost like, it's almost like how the people who made Airplane can't bring themselves to watch Airplane 2. I can't quite bring myself <laughs> to watch. <laughs> Not to say that that was the Airplane 2 of wrestling matches. But that's well, the one where they, bring, where they bring blood into it as well, Brett. Um, yeah. That's himself. But was uh, that for a title? Was that at when That was for the WWF Championship. Oh, that okay. was just after Brett had beaten Diesel for the title of the month before at Survivor Series. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and yeah, the Bulldog had turned heel a few months ago and was being pushed to sort of a perennial challenger like he challenged diesel the in your house before survivor series then he challenged brett at the in your house after that survivor series and then he was the first challenger for Shawn michaels after he beat he was yeah so he was having a number of world title matches at that point um so yeah like in uh so that makes it even more miraculous like learning it after the fact it was already my favorite favorite match before i knew that and what's interesting is then it makes spots that i always thought were just really inventive basically Brett covering up like the best example being when he goes over the top rope when Bulldog's on the outside and sort of does a reverse Bulldog to him yeah where he catches him and then brings him over and Bulldog lands on his knee that was because he was supposed to do a cross body and Bulldog wasn't in the right position so Brett Hart had to improvise mid move and turn it into a really cool looking yeah reverse Bulldog because he nearly screwed up Brett's knee yeah because he told me um years ago um and i think it's in um i'm not sure if it's in your book it was in your live show uh that basically brett um was told two minutes in by bulldog i've forgotten everything yeah um and i think i saw that exact moment because it's brett's got him in a um headlock and brett's very good at I've never, you very, very rarely, if ever, see Brett talk to his yeah. opponent. But I think I saw a little bit of it because Brett's got his head facing away from the hard cam. And immediately, and, and there's one moment where he just looks at shock down mm-hmm. at Davy Boy and speaks to him. Well, and it's seen... like, right. And then he gets, it's something, a gear just goes in his brain and his head just tips away again and then he's fine. But there's that yeah. moment of, oh, fuck and there's a bit where there's quite a few times when he's got him down in the chin lock which a lot of people like i remember scott keith used to say oh, i'm gonna i can't give this five stars because they used a chin lock rest spot for a while and i guess it had to be a rest spot for davy but it was just bret hart relaying to him what they're gonna do next yeah. what he would do is he'd hold him in the chin lock and he'd have his mouth behind bulldog's head so that he could mm-hmm. talk to him without you seeing his mouth um I always loved how Austin did it, that he'd kind of look half-time, he'd make it look like he was taunting his opponent. When he was Austin actually... is great at that. The, yeah. the facial expressions just mean he could get away. He doesn't matter where the camera is. Yeah. It can do it. 
Um, so yeah, like I said, it, it kind of is a precursor to the indies, kicking out of finishers, near falls at the end, instead of it being the usual Hulk Hogan or Ultimate Warrior hulks up, hits their moves, pins the person. And it, it led to how Brett liked to work going forward, and then from there comes Shawn Michaels, and from there comes modern wrestling. So it's another match that I think is probably culturally, even though it maybe is a an influence that people don't necessarily acknowledge as being as big an influence than it that it mm. is. But like I said, it was it was a main event based around it was the main event where, which was the best wrestled match of the night. And that was very rarely the case with Hulk Hogan. Uh, would never be the case really with the Ultimate Warrior. Was probably the case with Randy Savage. Um, but depending this, on this, his opponent. Well, like, and also this was the first post. This was the first pay per view that Hulk Hogan wasn't on the card, as well. So again, just a sign of changes. And for me, what also inspired... had he left the WCW at that point? Then no, no, no he hadn't. He let he retired at WrestleMania eight. Yeah, came back for WrestleMania nine, and that was where he took the title off of Yokozuna after he took the title. Off ah, of yes, because that's when he comes back as like sort of slim, cool Hogan, mm. very briefly. Yeah, yeah. But he's a lot slimmer at nine than he was before. Yeah, well, there's a reason. <laughs> uh, so baggy pants, baggy pants. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, and one last thing I want to say uh, before we wrap this up. One of the reasons I think I love it is its Britishness. Not just in the fact that it's a British Bulldog, but the crowd is a British crowd. You had the air horns going... England! What do they think they were going Bulldog? But, All that. You know. <laughs> Can we talk, very briefly before we do wrap things up, about Rowdy Roddy Piper playing the bagpipes... Uh, and why are they playing Flower of Scotland, match. even well, though Bulldog's not Scottish? Yeah, well, Scotland it was, that, was, that was just a separate... They, they didn't play Bulldog to the ring doing that. No. What's crazy is... But so what value does it little, add, then? I don't think that... I think that was, like, edited in at a different point. I don't know if that was necessarily what they did at that point. I think that might have been, like, earlier on in the show, but they just... Because it was... You know, it was broadcast two days after it happened because of the time differences. Uh, okay. Which has always been the thing that's put off them putting on a WrestleMania in, like, the UK or somewhere like that. Yeah, although we'll probably get some... sense. WrestleMania at Wembley Stadium would do insane business. Yeah, it'd sell out every day. Or, or SummerSlam. I always wanted them to do either at SummerSlam 2012 or SummerSlam 2017, like a 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary, go back there. Now that pay-per-view buys aren't as important, I don't see any reason why they can't. And I think inevitably well, they will. Three years away from 30-year anniversary. Yeah, but 30 is not as significant as 20 or 25. Yeah, but we've missed those. No, I know. But that was why I was saying it wouldn't mean as much to me at 30. <laughs> Nothing means anything once you turn 30. <laughs> Uh, and as a man who's 27, you've just terrified me to my core. As a man who's 35, you should be. <laughs> oh, God. I'm scared. Uh, my feet hurt. Anyway. <laughs> um, that got bleak. But yeah, the Britishness of it. To go back to bleak situations. The Britishness of it. Um... Just when Brett, when Bulldog pins him with that perfect pin combination, which is such a great finish, like it's that thing of neither man can put the other one down. So in the end, it's literally just like a pinning combination that's going to do it. Yeah. Um, and the crowd cheer is 
like it's it's a Alan Shearer scoring at Euro ninety six kind of cheer. That's beautiful. Or Gaza against Scotland with the dentist chair. What's interesting is I'd watched it on the VHS release where it went sunset flip. Yeah. But then I heard another audio where Vince continues talking after that. Where he goes, sunset flip? No, he reversed it. Yeah. And Bobby Heenan says, Wembley Arena has exploded. Or Wembley Stadium. I don't know where I am. (laughs) So they must have known after, like they knew. Keep it simple. Just strip that back. You know, now they'd never be allowed to shut up, you know, as people are con- constantly complaining. Mm-hmm. And that was also a wonderful little moment that I, so like I said, I never experienced that until years later. I saw it in a different situation. Sometimes well, you didn't have, sometimes it isn't. I don't know what, what well, the they, reason they, for that they is. They love to have, like, now they think about the clip show. Now they think about the, the clip for the next pay per view, the clip for their collections for the network. Mm. That's why I think they like to crowbar certain lines in at certain points now yeah but and, and then afterwards like the first thing you do hear Vince McMahon say is I can't believe it one of the greatest wrestling hearing that from Vince McMahon wrestling matches of all time has just taken place but yeah it's that thing of like uh, like Bobby Heenan says have they hit themselves with anything I just think we've seen every move it's kind of starting to get into that thing of you know like we're seeing with especially with like you know like there's nothing compared to what all japan women were doing at the time you haven't say, seen all like... the moves until but it was just things like seeing a top rope superplex i know the dynamite kid had been doing it for years before then but that was the first time i saw it mm. and bret hart started to incorporate that into his move set after bulldog left very soon afterwards yeah and yeah, so then you're... it started to be that like that's where the main event not only have you seen that you've seen it in the main event match mm-hmm. you know because to I'm go sure back, Michaels pushes that further on as he goes on as well. Because to go back to the point uh, we were making earlier about our horizons being broadened, you're right. You at at the time this went out, you wouldn't have seen moves like this, but they were there in different like fields of wrestling. Yeah, I don't but, recall seeing a German suplex in a WWF match before. It was Bret Hart yeah. does it in that match. But a girl in her mid twenties was throwing them around in Japan like no one's business. Um. But yeah, no. This is this is it. This is like the main. This is this is sort of the this fast pace of Joe's main event matches being including maybe the best wrestlers on the card. Yeah, which has never been the WWF's prerogative before. Isn't necessarily still, but even now, John Cena's expected to have high quality matches that have to have a yeah. back and forth element to it. The whole Kogan Ultimate Warrior structure never came back, even when Diesel. Was sort of their attempt to reclaim it. He did have. He did, he never was like he's dieseling up or anything. Well, Nash Nash's quad still worked then, yeah. ish. But you get where I'm coming from. The need for the main eventers to actually be able to wrestle matches that you would give four or five stars mm. to. This is really maybe where it came from in the WWF sense, at least. Obviously, with WCW, they'd had Ric yeah. Flair for years and everything, and their motto was "We wrestle," so it was different mindsets. And it's a sort of, in a way, I think the stuff we've seen in those Joshi matches sort of blending with what what the it was taking elements yeah it was taking elements of it but never pushing it too far pushing it far enough that it was just about believable Brown kicking out of the top rope suplex almost felt like a stretch too far for me in a way mm-hmm. um but then bulldog getting it like when bulldog gets put in the sharpshooter you can hear screams in the crowd of like what no <laughs> 
and then you know again and almost like it's I'm almost the other way around when when Bulldog does his power slam it kind of and he doesn't win from that that kind of frustrates him and then when Bret Hart can't put him away with the sharpshooter that frustrates Bret Hart and he starts beating on Bulldog's back setting mm. him up for the move and then does the sunset flip and he makes the mistake and Bulldog catches him I just also want to say when uh, I think SummerSlam was his 30th anniversary on 2018 or 2017 and WWE did you know they do their weekly top 10s well that one they did a top 30 yeah. SummerSlam moments all time and this was number one for whatever that's worth I'm sure it's just a real wrestling nerd that they have to do all those things, but yeah, you know that's this is. I think this is also the only pay per view match where the Intercontinental Title was in the main event solely. It's been part of like you know multiple titles on the line, mm-hmm. but the main event being for the Intercontinental Title. A lot of people wanted the Miz and and Dolph Ziggler to get that one year, but oh, the career threatening that. one. Yeah, yeah, but they didn't have that be the main event. I think it would have been entitled to have it. Because no, I they, think that was the pay-per-view where like they had three main events and the WWE title went on first, if memory yes, serves me correctly. I think it was something to do with, like, it was on at the same time as, like, the Super Bowl. Not the Super Bowl. Not some the Super sort Bowl, of, but it was an NFL Some sort of big game. sporting event yeah. was taking place, and so they had that go first, which is crazy. Um, but, again, we just get distracted. But, Simon, obviously I'm giving this one five stars. I would, like, I would stars? like to highlight that I made my decision before you threatened to send um, <laughs> your bodily deposits to me in the post. <laughs> uh, not in the Vincent Van Gogh way. Or no. in the John Wayne Bobbitt way. But I think... I, I really like this match. And I think one of the reasons I liked it is because it's wrestling I, I'm sort of more used to. Which for a time period that it's in... It's strange. Well, is it wrestling that you're used to because this was the match that influenced the wrestling that you're used to? This is it. But it's, like, key... it's like when I saw, when I watched Richard Pryor for the first time do stand-up and it's like, oh, well, this is where, like, all of my favourite comedians got something from. Yeah. Or, like, you listen to so much pop music and you listen to the Beatles and then you're like, oh, well, this is where... Not it all came from because it all came from Little Richard and loads of black artists that we were like, yeah, we'll take that, thank you. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. And this, I am going to give five stars to this. I, I did like it. I liked it. I liked it a lot. So, out of the three matches you've given five stars to as well, would you rank it above Kabashi Kikuchi, Furness Crawford? Oh, no. Okay. So, so, but you would rank it above Flair Steamboat at Clash of the Champions six. Like, oh god! I, I just know them by numbers you didn't now. Give that one five stars. I didn't give that one five stars. Then yes, I would. Okay, got to be consistent. Yeah, it's uh, just well, I, I know, numbered the flare steamboats because there's so yeah, many. Sorry. I was, yeah. Well, I um, it's my favorite match of all time, and because of that, I don't think I can qualify it as like whether it's the better match than flare steamboats or whatever. I can't say that. All I can say it is it's my favorite match. Mm-hmm. It's like how my favourite film of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. But, you know, if you're going to look at the historic... Again, like, maybe I can understand why Citizen Kane was, for the longest time, the greatest movie of yeah. all time. You know? And to go back to, um, again, to our mutual five, uh, top five list, um, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons uh, we had such a lengthy conversation about it is because 
the uh, six-man tag that I backed is one of my favorite matches of all time. So I completely get why you've got to put like a qualifier on it because I was arguing from that position earlier on in this episode. So To preempt anyone that might write in and ask, we're going to hold off a funny out what Simon's favorite match of all time. Do you have a favorite match, Si? Don't tell <laughs> us what it is, but do you have one? Not a definitive one. I have a favorite one I've seen live. Okay. Um, well, is that a match that I can watch that to do a mute to do a? a, a it is, and okay. uh, when the time is right, later on in this project, it is one I'm going to be put forward, putting forward um, in one of these top ten discussions. Well, maybe that's something you need to ponder yourself, Simon, before and and come back to us because we will do if you have a favorite favorite match. A favorite mm. match. Do you have a favorite movie? No. No. Wow, that's interesting. No. Do you have a favorite album? Favorite song? No. My my relationship with music is very strange. Um, I don't have like a set genre or even like favorite bands. Really, I just if it feels good. I listen. Do you have many favorites in life? <laughs> um. Do you have a favorite parent? Don't need to tell us. <laughs> Oh, that one's quite easy, actually. <laughs> we won't call it that, Fred. Um, Do you have a favourite ex-girlfriend? <laughs> you are a very bad man. <laughs> well, not too bad. I've just rescinded the, the the parcel. That's true, that's true. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've, I've set up an allotment. Uh... <laughs> Anyway, we've talked a lot here, Simon. Um, so it's been a bit of a relaxing debrief. We've been smoking cigars along the way and uh, swilling brandy in muskets or whatever it is they are. Muskets? I don't, I don't want to blow my head off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, resting our feet on a young boy that's being paid minimum wage. <laughs> it's just like a weird term. But anyway... Uh, we'll be back in a few days' time with the 31st match of our list. Let's see if it might make our mutual top 10s later on. You'll we'll have to out. pack our sun cream for this one, because mm-hmm. we're off well, to yes. sunny Mexico. Yes, we are. We're off to Mexico. Uh, it's the start of 1993, a year which saw nine matches get five stars by Dave Meltzer. And is it, it's, Yes, it is Heavy Metal, Picudo, and Psychosis. Taking on Super Calo, this guy's name's a bit of a spoiler, winners, and one 18-year-old, Ray Mysterio Jr. So let's see how Lucha Libre infects our wrestling worldview, as we already discussed earlier on. But until then, if you want to get in touch with me, it's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Alliance, N for... Nostromo. No, A for Alien, N for Nostromo. There we Simon, go. Simon, if you want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Um, Simon Cross Free, for the number of matches from the last list that made, that kept in my personal top five. Good work there. Uh, but until then if you want to get in touch with us it's lmtyspod at gmail.com collectively like Dave from Preston you want to get in touch and give us a question then feel free to do so but then after that all there's left to say is 
On behalf of myself, Lorcan Mullen. And myself, Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. Oh,